Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay. That's the point, isn't it? So uh, what appeared to be at least uh, a week ago on Shabbat to be a quiet week, exploded to be otherwise, Israeli elections, um, the decision yesterday in the United States regarding abortion, and no, certainly nothing any less than the Torah portion this morning, which is a remarkably depthful, provocative uh, story about the spies that no matter how many times and years pass with me reading it, I always feel as if I understand the questions, but I don't understand the answers, which in fact may yield it to be perhaps one of the most classic of Jewish stories, that it's filled with questions and not many very good answers. But first, and perhaps uh, last, I thought I would um, talk about the uh, soup du jour, which is the abortion question coming out of the States. And first to begin by asking, um, because my, my inbox filled up with uh, lots of emails from people yesterday, and uh, why are we so concerned about what goes on in the States? And the truth of the matter is, if you would have, you probably shouldn't, but if you put on CBC, um, uh, they had representatives of Canadian uh, abortion rights movements talking. And everyone's in a panic, right? They're talking like the storm's coming, batten the hatches, close the doors, that kind of thing. And the hysteria, I don't understand, of course, because these are two different countries. Yes, we share a border, but when they vote for their elected officials, they're not voting here and vice versa. So why do we care so much, and not just Canada for the record, throughout the world, it was overwhelmingly lamented. I mean, pr primarily my Twitter feed is filled with Israeli news, and it was no less, um, it was no less gloomy and mournful and critical that you would have seen in the Canadian news or anywhere else. In fact, there was a French newspaper, I forget which one it was, it was one of the big ones. They published on their front page uh, for today, apparently, uh, but they released it yesterday. The front cover was an American flag, half of the American colors, the other half black, and it was called Black Friday. So why do we care so much? And I think there's a few reasons, actually. One, America is the longest surviving, functioning federal democracy in the world, period. The kind of democracy that we live under, the federalist system that America functions under, is in fact the mother that has given birth to many systems throughout the world. And so the American model of democracy is one, once again, it's the oldest federal functioning democracy in the world, and we look upon it as the standard bearer, as the thing that holds the candle in the night, the bellwether, the shavshevet, as they would say in Hebrew, about how things come and go. The other thing, of course, which is deeply connected to the first reason, is that it could easily be said, easily be said, and difficult to argue, that if it wasn't for the Americans, that democracy as we know it today would not look anything like it does today. And that is because one of the great enterprises of America, and I speak specifically post-Second World War, 
was to create an economic system that would support and also grow democracy throughout the world. When you think of the Marshall Plan, and for those of you who came to Germany with me, uh, the Marshall Plan building, the building where the Marshall Plan was actually administered out of is still standing in the center of Berlin. They didn't take it down or convert it into a condo. It is a standing monument landmark to the American efforts to help Europe get back on its feet. And so the American efforts throughout Europe and Japan, for the record, um, and elsewhere in the war, post-Second World War, is a standing tribute to the importance that America has to the project of democracy throughout the world. And lastly, I want to say that for Jews, what goes on in America is important to us. America is the second largest Jewish community in the world. Jews are the most successful minority. Listen carefully. Jews are the most successful minority in the history of the United States, which is to say that Jews are the most successful minority in the history of the world. Two-thirds of Protestants, when they're regularly polled, they do this every few years, two-thirds of Protestants want their daughters to marry Jewish men. And this is an indication, I think, of the great respect that people have for what they believe to be the values of Jews. Of course, we don't want them taking our boys, but uh, the idea that they see this, this people, the Jews, as something that they want to marry into because it's good. Over and over again, the fate of the Jews is deeply tied, no matter where you may live as a Jew. The fate of the Jews is deeply tied to the fate of the United States. All right, so let's talk about abortion. Judaism has a lot to say about abortion, not surprisingly, of course. Most of what you'll find written about abortion in Judaism, and uh, although there's what to say about it, um, it's certainly not a core concern. Uh, the medical the medical development surrounding abortion is maybe a hundred something years old, a little bit longer in terms of effective modern medical interventions. They had ancient interventions uh, that the Talmud lists out, which I'm not going to go into now, um, but they had ancient ways of attempting to abort uh, children. Uh, there are more cruder methods as well, but resoundedly what you see written uh, both in the rabbinic codes, but also in the commentaries of the of the biblical code of the Torah is something very, very clear. And that is this. That commandment over there, number six, when it says, Lo tirzach, that you shall not murder, which is routinely quoted by advocates of, who are pro-life, it is unequivocally, in the Jewish perspective, inapplicable to a fetus. This is not to say that abortion should become a routine, casual, not morally complicated event in a human being's life. Of course, it is hard to imagine, and as you know, I'm a man, 
So I have to imagine this. It is hard to imagine that for any woman, it would be a simple, uncomplicated thing. And so one must primarily respect that a woman who does come to that decision certainly must have gone through a difficult, wrenching process within herself to decide the decision to do that. In rabbinic Judaism, it is filled with the idea that the, uh, the child, that the fetus is not a human being until it leaves the body of the mother. And though, so if it is not, if it is not a life, then what is it? There's debate over this, but generally the uh, majority rabbinic opinion is, is that it is considered to be an appendage of the mother's body. That so long as it cannot exist outside the mother's body or does not exist outside of the mother's body independently, so long as it is connected to the umbilical cord and within the mother's body, rabbinic, traditionally, rabbinic tradition generally rules that it is no different from any other organ in the human body. And so it is part of the mother. Now, added to this, let's put a little chocolate sauce into the vanilla, one only. Okay, so let's do that. Added to this is also another debated question, and that's the question of what theologically is called ensoulment. What's ensoulment? It's the question of when does a human life have a divine character to it? Generally categorized as when does a human life develop a soul? Ensoulment. Now, if you're an atheist, this isn't a question for you at all because you don't believe humans have souls. But if you're a person of some measure of faith, and I'm not talking about what your level of observance is, reform, orthodox, conservative, whatever it is, that's not important. But if you're a person of faith, of religious faith, maybe not observance, but religious faith, then the question of when a soul develops, in other words, when the question of when this life has a characteristic to it that makes it unique and special and divine, that's a worthy question to ask. And, and in Jewish tradition, we recognize that while the fetus has some status, certainly above your kidney, that there is some measure of ensoulment in the fetus. But the rabbis land firmly in saying that until it is out of the mother and breathing, it is not, the language of the rabbis is, bar kayama. It is not a standing human being. Just so you know, and this is a, a hard thing to say, but I'm, I'm going to say it to give context to it. Uh, generally, uh, in rabbinic tradition, if a child doesn't survive the first 30 days, Kaddish is not recited over it. And why is that the case? Because then, even then, the life is not seen as being completely whole and complete until, in other words, life and the maturation of the physical body was seen as something that was evolutionary, something that developed. And where does this actually put us? What this puts us in is to recognize something more pragmatic. And that is the decision that came from the United States Supreme Court 
was tragic and it was heartbreaking because it was divisive. And it was divisive really practically for very little reason other than that there was an ideological mandate that they felt they had to fulfill. They, um, they had uh, couched it They had couched it under language. It's definitely not for me. That much I know. <laughs> they had couched it under language that they were correcting a legal thing. It was a technicality issue, but no one bought it. They weren't trying to be uh, reinstate what they argued was bad legal logic in resolving or or fixing this problem. It was an ideological thing. And that one of the things that societies need above all else to figure out how to do is that we need to learn how to live with each other. You can't make laws, and the rabbis say this over and over again. Lo gazrinan gzerat al gzerat rabbanan al gazrim she'inu bakayamim you're not allowed to make laws, the ancient rabbi said, that people can't live with. And the rabbinic tradition is woven over and over again, as a teacher of mine once said to me, it doesn't take a Tamar Chacham to say no to something. Anybody can say no. Can I eat this rabbi? No. Can I do this? No. Can I marry that person? No. Should I go to that shul? No. It takes a Tamar Chacham to say yes. Because someone who's wise understands. Someone who's wise who understands that the point of life and living with faith and law is to live in the midst of the world that you live in. Not to recreate it, but to live in it. At the very end of uh, her press conference yesterday, uh, the Speaker of the American House of Representatives, that being Nancy Pelosi, I don't know if you saw it, she read a poem by an Israeli poet, um, Ehud Manor. Manor wrote the poem, In the Eretz Acheret, I Have No Other Land. He wrote the poem in the 90s when, uh, as he writes in his poem, Eretz Bo Eret, My Land is Burning. In the 90s, of course, Israel was in both uh, terrible financial and, uh, and other situations that always, I mean, are familiar to us. And I think she made a mistake, though. Nancy Pelosi was trying to stay in reading Ehud Manor's beautiful poem, which has been written, written into music and sung by many artists, in saying that this, divisive, this, excuse me, this divisiveness in the United States is making her country unlivable. But she has no other country. I have no other country. And so I will cry for her until she hears my tears, so to speak. But Ehud Manor wrote that poem, not because Israel was tearing itself up from the inside, but because it was under attack from the outside. And in the Torah portion this morning, the warning of an Eretz Ochelet et Yosheveha, of a land that can consume its inhabitants, is a warning that we see in our time. They have to figure out how to live with each other, just like we have to figure out how to live with each other. 
about learning how to live with opinions that we don't like. But the point of life is not proving people wrong. The point of life is living with people that you may not agree with. And no Jewish idea is stronger than that. Shabbat Shalom.